morning. I want to remind you, uh, if you haven't seen this, it's in your bulletin, I believe, letting you know about special observance of 9-11. Next Sunday is September 11th. And a number of uh, our churches in this area are combining to have a very special service next Sunday, 4.30 p.m. at Visalia First Assembly. All the details are here. So special observances that we might do here, we're all going to do together in a collaborative uh, spirit before the Lord. So I hope that you'll take that out of your bulletin, take it home with you, put it somewhere where you can remember to set aside that time next Sunday afternoon at Visalia First Assembly as a lot of us gather together uh, on the special occasion of the 10th anniversary of the uh, events of September 11th and the many who, who died. Well, this morning we're in our series, What's Love Got to Do With It? We're in verse 5. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be looking at love is not rude. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking or it does not seek its own interests. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears." When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. God's love, the word agape, the word used here, that word agape, almost symbolic of the characteristics of love we just read about. 
When we think of agape, we think of this, this beautiful, extraordinary love that we associate with the way God has loved us. That kind of love, Paul says, is not rude. And then he says right after it, it does not seek its own interests or self-serving. I think the last thing we want is to be rude or selfish. This whole week, as you might imagine, if you're preparing to speak on the subject, love is not rude, it does not seek its own interest, you become aware of rudeness. Not only in yourself, but certainly in others. And you don't have to look far, I admit. Uh, it just seems that when you're thinking about it, it's kind of like you have one channel on your television set, and all that it plays is rude and seeking your own interests. And uh, it's pretty easy. I mean, go to the grocery store or get, on the, get in the car and go for a drive, and, and you'll discover rude in yourself and in others. It's just inevitable. But last Monday in the news, something, I mean, if there's any question about rudeness, let me just give you a real clean, straightforward example. Pammy Gibbs, 29, punched Fillmore Elementary School Principal Evangelina Ramos several times. Two women. Pammy punched Evangelina, the principal, because the principal asked Pammy Gibbs' son, nine-year-old, to turn his shirt inside out or to go home and change it because there were emblems on that shirt. There were skulls and crossbones which violated the uniform law of the school. And mom came, said some things about Evangelina that she can't control, like her skin color, her background, her upbringing, and then punched her several times, put her in the hospital, and uh, Pammy faces two felony and two misdemeanors for her actions. Now, she felt justified, but that's rude. That is rude. Love does not punch the principal in the face when things don't go your way. Even if you don't think those skulls are very visible. Even if you think you have to look a little extra hard to see those skulls on that shirt. That doesn't mean it's okay to punch the principal in the face. That's rude. Love is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. And I think Pammy was seeking her own interests when she punched the principal in the face. Not once, and not silently. Love does not insult a person because they are red, brown, yellow, black, or white. That was the song I learned. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. It's just a little rhyme. It's almost a nursery rhyme. But there's some great truth there. They're all precious in his sight because that's the gospel. At the heart of the gospel 
is that God looks beyond our faults to meet our needs. His love and His grace are greater than our sin. While we were yet sinners, that is, while we were rude toward Him, He was not rude toward us in return, but treated us in a way we did not deserve with grace and love. And so I, I just think, wow, Lord, it's so wonderful the way you stimulate and speak to the heart of Brian about the very things that I'm thinking about as we ponder your word, because that was just right on target, you see, that idea of what we're becoming and how rudeness is, in a sense, a violation of a more spiritual standard. It is not as petty as the social standards that divide peoples and provinces and nations and cultures. I realize that rude is tricky. It gets tricky. I remember when we were in Israel. Boy, when, when all the different nationalities gathered at these international hotels for, for the smorgasbord, it was, it was amazing how people cut in line. And, and it, somebody said, well, that's their, that's their way. Well, I don't like their way. <laughs> their way is not my way. See, there are all kinds of things that... For example, in addition to aggressive driving or tailgating, saying things that embarrass, insult, or offend people, or appearance, dress, how you, how you dress. You know, every, every communion Sunday morning, I, I've gotten to the place while during the summer in Visalia in 2011, I can come without a full black suit and tie. But for years, I would always wear a full black suit with a tie because I knew that at the highest standards, so to speak, of what people expect and what's appropriate, that would meet that standard and I would not be astounded. And there may be even people here today that say, well, what's the pastor doing just, you know, dressed in Polynesian sort of uh, shirt on Communion Sunday? See, that sometimes we're underdressed or we're dressed completely out of accord, and that can cause people to feel offensive. Cutting in line, as I already mentioned. Uh, these are not just my pet peeves, by the way, but uh, for example, yawning, coughing, sneezing without covering one's mouth. Yeah, that's a little rude. It's insensitive. It's not considerate of others. These are standards, at least here in these United States. You may be from a visiting country this morning, and this may not be, you know, what you're accustomed to, but these are things that, by and large, the majority... But see, all of that has changed in the last uh, decades. Uh, poor table manners. Please and thank you. And as uh, Brian mentioned, you know, not eating all the food first. And disturbing noise and other things. Loud music. <laughs> And, and for example, phones ringing in places like in the library where it's supposed to be quiet and we're to be considerate of other people. Excuse me. Yes. Oh, sure, I'd love to come. Yeah, I can make it. When is it? Oh, great, great. I look forward to it. Hey, thanks for calling. I'm, I didn't want to miss that. Really appreciate it. Okay. See you later. Bye. That's rude. (laughs) 
a lot of times these things can happen unintentionally. Paul is not zeroed in on the unintentional rudeness. He's really going after intentional rudeness. That's why the very next expression, in my opinion, I I think this is the case, that's why he says love is not rude, love does not seek its own interests. Rudeness comes out of a sense of my interests, my rights, what I think should be happening here has been violated. And that gives me, so to speak, license to be rude. We don't see ourselves as rude. We see ourselves as sticking up for what's right. See, that's what triggers rudeness. And that's why Paul goes to the heart of where rudeness comes from. It's my rights, seeking my interests. I'll have a word to say about that more in just a moment. But Lewis in Mere Christianity, and this goes back, I think he wrote Mere Christianity in the 50s, he, knowing that rudeness sometimes is a little tricky, he was talking in his chapter on sexual morality about perceptions, and notice what he says here. He says, a girl in the Pacific Island wearing hardly any clothes and a Victorian lady completely covered in clothes might be both equally modest proper or decent according to the standards of their own societies. And both, for all we could tell by their dress, might be equally chaste. In other words, rude is not always intentional and certainly not always a clue to immorality. Sometimes we're rude and we don't realize it. We need to be schooled and more sensitive to others, but that is sometimes an acquired wisdom. But Lewis adds this, and I really think it still speaks to us. He says, I think that old or old-fashioned people, okay, I'm listening. I think that old or old-fashioned people should be very careful not to assume that young or emancipated people are corrupt whenever they are by the old standard improper and in return that young people should not call their elders prudes or puritans because they do not easily adopt the new standard a real desire to believe all the good you can of others and to make others as comfortable as you can will solve most of the problems You see, that helps us, I think, to see what Paul is targeting. Rude here is intentional, not so much ignorance, er but arrogance. And that's why Paul adds, love does not seek its own interests. I think there are two triggers that cause us to seek our own interests. The first is entitlement and the second is provincialism. Now let me explain. Entitlement has to do with that sense of this is right. My rights have been violated. Like when somebody cuts in line 
or somebody cuts me off in the road. It's my right. See, this is wrong. And so it prompts us to act in a way that others would perceive is rude. It sparks an anger in us. Provincialism is not a word that we use that often. I had to learn it myself a few years back. Didn't know what it meant. But it's really quite simple. Comes from the word province. In our province, in our tribe, in our village, in our country. The way we do it is right. This is the way my parents reared me. This is the way we do things. And I am sympathetic to how that strikes us because in our world right now, some of us, and I know I speak for a few of you at least, we're troubled. I see it on Facebook, posting and stuff. This is the way we were brought. We were taught to say please and thank you. And it bugs us, if not violates what we think is the proper standard of conduct in the way every kid should be raised. And if parents were doing their job, they would teach their kids to say please and thank you. And we say, this country's going to hell in a handbasket because kids are acting up and we just aren't. Let's get back to the good old days. Let's recover America. Let's get back to these values. I mean, don't, are, you, are you feeling me? And sometimes inside, we may not act rude, but boy, we sure have a strong opinion. And sometimes we just like to, in our, in our hearts and in our minds, we just like to slap that kid. <laughs> or, or maybe on the road, you know, just run that guy. I mean, it's a cartoonish kind of thing, right? <laughs> but here's the issue. We're not going to get that genie back in the bottle. As Christians, the gospel did not originate here in the United States. It was not created by our founding fathers. The gospel was founded by our heavenly father. And there are Christians all over the world in different cultures and in different circumstances and economic conditions They were raised in different ways, but they're all children of the gospel. And what I'm just trying to say to you and me is that what are we going to do when this world is kind of crumbling around us and we're not able to get back to the thing? I mean, I'd love to go back to the 50s. That's when I was reared. I think the world was perfect in here in the United States. But what about the real world in which we live? The real people, the rude people that we have to deal with. How are we going to handle them? Are we going to stew and become bitter and uptight and angry and go off like some postal worker eventually because things are just going bad to worse? Or are we going to make a difference, put our spear in the ground and say, by God's grace, with His strength, in His love, I am going to treat rudeness with love. And I'm going to realize that I am not a a creation of this constitution as much as I am a creation of His constitution. And through Christ, I'm going to stumble, of course. I'm going to fall short. It's going to take work. But I'm going to be inspired by Jesus to do what Jesus would do 
I'm going to stand on the gospel, not on the way I was reared. I'm going to stand on the constitution of Christ, not on the way I think this world should go. I'm going to deal with it, not because it upsets or violates my sensibilities, but I'm going to be used of God to touch people with the gospel. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 32 and 33. Just before we get to chapter 13, he's already been talking about this. He says, whether you eat, table manners, or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews, or to Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. There's the same language that he uses in verse 5 to follow up. Love is not rude, seeking its own advantage, seeking its own interests. Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. There's the objective. I want to be Christ-like. I don't want to violate becoming like Christ. There is the power. There is the power to deal with these things in the way of the gospel and not in a knee-jerk reaction that's ever so human. When I was 22, that's a long way back, for me. I think that was around 75. I was an intern, but when I came into the church, as many of you know, I had long hair, had a beard, had an earring. I was really dressed inappropriately, had, you know, worn, and and that was my look. Now I can say that. Back then I wouldn't admit it, but that was my look, you know. That was my style. And I wasn't giving it up. And that's, but the people at the church looked beyond that. They did not stumble over my problem. They looked beyond my faults to meet my need with the love of God. And I'll tell you, it touched my heart because where I'd been to church before, boy, it, it's different than it is today. Everybody would be all dressed to the hilt now, but when someone like I back then came into the church, it was, a lot of churches where I went to, man, that was just, it was an immoral thing, see? And that drew me to Christ. And I gave my life to Christ, the call of God upon my life. I wanted to, I wanted to give my life to this because this was radical, you know. This was this is life change. This changes me. So I entered ministry. And the first time I was asked to speak, given a chance to speak, I was 22, and uh, I had this this opportunity to speak at First Baptist Church in Houston, California, a little town outside of Modesto. And, and as I was preparing, I was, I was scared to death because I I'm, didn't like to talk, stand in front of people. I was kind of self-conscious and so But this was a big step of faith for me. But as I was preparing, God started touching my heart. See, I wasn't given a set of rules. Cut your hair. Get some clean clothes. Take that earring out of your hair. Shave that beard. And then you'll be acceptable. I was acceptable 
because we're all acceptable in His grace. And then God started working on me through that very grace to change my attitude. So here I'm getting ready to preach, and I'm thinking, I need to take this earring out because I tell you, back then, nobody wore earrings except pirates and bikers. (laughs) And there weren't that many pirates in Central Valley. (laughs) And the bikers were in San Francisco. Really, this was, that church looked beyond that And they even let me enter ministry and start serving the Lord. And they invested in my life, even though I didn't take that earring out. But when I got ready to stand up with the responsibility to live for Jesus Christ and speak to that church, all of a sudden I realized they're not even going to hear a word I say because that earring's just going to be punching them in the face. They don't understand it. So I went to my pastor. I said, should I take this earring out? Because I was just looking for comfort. I didn't want to take it out. I like my earring. I'd still wear the thing. I suppose it'd look a little kooky at my age, but I've seen worse. A lot worse. No spandex. Uh, he said, John, you'd need, you're, you need to listen to the Lord. I think you're right. I think you're right. And I took the earring out. And they weren't that amazed at beards and long hair, but I kind of cleaned up, and I'll tell you, I was scared. That was, that was quite an experience. But the point is, God did that work. See, we are not judges. What we are called to do is love and, and, and demonstrate the liberating joy and love and sovereignty of God in our lives. That is huge. Because of God's love, we stand not on our own rights, but God's grace. God's grace has got to be what motivates us. That's what we have to get in touch with. Legalism is not going to compel us. It's not going to come to heart when people are wrong us, according to our upbringing and background. But God's grace, as we continue to let... His love and goodness reign in our hearts. It'll change us, soften us, and give us a wiser way of living like Christ. This was impressed upon me. Gregory Boyle, in a a book called Tattoos on the Heart, published uh, last year, tells a story of a 15-year-old gang member named Rigo. We used to have a Rigo in our church in South San Francisco. But just before a special service for incarcerated youth, Boyle just asked Rigo, he says, is your dad coming today? And uh, Rigo said, no, he's a heroin addict. We don't have any part in each other's lives. And then he became kind of quiet. He started to get a little choked up. And he says, "Uh, I remember I was in the fourth grade. I got sent home. I came home. And... uh, Actually, I was sent home. And when I got home, my dad says, why'd they send you home? And because my dad always beat me, I said, if I tell you, promise you won't hit me. He said, I'm your father. Of course I'm not going to hit you. So I told him. And then Rigo began to cry. In a moment, he, he just started wailing and rocking back and forth. Boyle put his arm around Rigo and 
Slowly he calmed down. When Rigo could finally speak again, he said, very quietly, he said, he beat me with a pipe and threw the sobs with a pipe. After he composed himself, Boyle asked him, well, what about your mom? And Rigo pointed to a small woman and said, that's her over there. There's no one like her. Then Rigo paused and said, I've been locked up for a year and a half. She comes to see me every Sunday. Do you know how many buses she takes every Sunday to see me? And he began to sob uncontrollably again. And after he calmed down through kind of that seven buses, she takes seven buses. Imagine. Imagine. I tried to imagine when I want to go someplace, if I committed to seeing my son who disappointed me, committed to taking seven buses, that long journey to see him every week. That's grace. And Boyle says, God in Jesus Christ takes seven buses to touch you and me with his love and grace. A long journey, whatever it takes. We're rude and yet God shows us love because of his heart of grace. We're reading this book on Wednesdays as staff. A little further in the book, we haven't gotten there yet, a woman realizes the difference between works and grace, religion and the gospel. She'd only heard that God accepts us if we're good enough. And this is what she says, if I was saved by my good works then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by grace, and there's nothing He cannot ask of me, nothing He cannot ask of me, she saw clearly the implications of grace and gratitude. I don't expect us to hear 1 Corinthians 13.5, love is not rude, and then never be rude again. As much as I was thinking about this, this week I know I was rude. Sometimes it's just in the heart, sometimes our actions... I'm not talking about something that's not familiar to each and every one of us. But I wanted to underscore what really starts to transform us is realizing that grace treats others in a way that they don't deserve. And that is love. And love is not rude. When I was at that church uh, in Houston, I was so scared. I, I really thought I was going to be sick to my stomach. And uh, the deacon, that's what they were called back then, uh, the deacon, the, kind of the head of the church when the pastor is away, 
he, uh, he said, join me in this little room off of the sanctuary. They called them sanctuaries then. Uh, meet me in this room off the sanctuary. We'll spend some time together and pray. And while we were there, he says, uh, we're going we're gonna to have an invitation, right? I said, yes, I'd like to give an invitation, you know, a chance for people to respond to what the Spirit does through God's work. And he said, well, what song would you like? Well, I thought that was their decision, but he asked me, and I had no experience. This was the first time I'd ever preached or spoken in church. So I said, uh, well, uh, will do great, um, amazing grace, because that's what we did at our church for the invitation, amazing grace. This is great. He steps out, and then he comes back in, and I think everything's fine. We're going to be praying. It's just minutes from, from entering the sanctuary where I'm supposed to go up on the platform and sit, and all of a sudden, the organist comes in, and her disposition, I mean, she was really upset, and she says, I don't do amazing grace. And she looks right at me, like, I, like it's my fault. And I guess it was, but I didn't mean anything by it. I mean, pick whatever song you want, it's fine. But, and I think it might have had to do, maybe it was technically difficult or something. I don't, I don't know that it was, she had anything against the song itself. But she could, she, that's the way she put it. I don't do Amazing Grace. And that's stuck in my mind. And I, I just thought this week, John, when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts in front of you and you just think of Jesus on the cross, picture him there pouring out his life for your life, absorbing, absorbing the cost of your bad attitude and your rudeness so that you might be free to fellowship with God and know all the privileges and entitlements of being a child of God and say to Him, I don't do amazing grace. You see, apart from the song, we're called to do amazing grace because we are recipients of amazing grace. And so as we prepare to observe which is in symbol the body of Jesus Christ given for us in His blood, His life poured out to seal a new covenant with God. This, symbolically, is amazing grace. This is what, symbolically, we inject. But the point is that in our hearts, we would so treasure and value that grace again that this would be our Pledge of Allegiance. This would be our Confession of Faith. And biblically, it is the formal, sacramental expression of faith. To take the bread, we are saying, your death for me. And the cup, recognizing and acknowledging we are children of a new covenant. I do amazing grace. That's what we're saying when we take the bread and the cup. This week, when you're faced with rudeness in yourself and others, do amazing grace. And let it be a special gift and sacrifice unto the Lord that says, 
the worth of your grace makes this possible. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for your Spirit. We have forgiveness of sin because of Jesus' death on the cross. We have power to live and do amazing grace because of your Spirit. Father, as we take this bread and this cup, impress this upon us. May it be real for us so that we experience not shame and guilt, but joy. And realize we have the opportunity to inspire others with the very Son, your Son of love, who indwells us and affects us. Father, in this spirit, we take this bread and cup this morning. And we thank you for it. And for your Son and your Spirit, in Jesus' name, Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.